This is an ABC podcast. This is a briefcase. It was a soft, ordinary office briefcase, quite large, that was tanned in colour. This briefcase is carrying a deadly secret. It was very heavy. We know that because, of course, it was laden not only with documents and papers, but with a plastic explosive charge. This briefcase has one purpose, to get close enough to Adolf Hitler to kill him. I'm Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the University of Queensland, and this is an object in time for the History Listen, the series where we hear the stories of everyday objects that change history forever. Today, the briefcase sent to kill Hitler. The Prime Minister has sent the German Führer and Chancellor through His Majesty's Ambassador in Berlin the following message. In view of increasingly critical situation, I propose to come over at once to see you with a view to trying to find a peaceful solution. It's 1938. Hitler is firmly in power and he's busy taking back the territory in Europe that Germany lost under the Treaty of Versailles. He's taken the Rhineland and he's joined Germany to Austria. Now he's invaded Czechoslovakia and a group of military men have been watching him with suspicion. There were already plots in place at a high level in the German officer corps before the Second World War started, around the time of the Munich Conference in 1938. Nigel Jones is a historian and the author of Countdown to Valkyrie, the July plot to assassinate Hitler. There were high-ranking officers who were prepared to overthrow Hitler, although not necessarily to assassinate him, because they thought he was recklessly setting Germany on a path for war that she wasn't ready for. From 1938 onwards, people try to assassinate Hitler, usually with bombs. There are bombs put inside walls and even bombs hidden in bottles of liqueur. But none of these plots work out. Sometimes it's just bad luck and devices don't explode when they should. Sometimes the people involved get cold feet. And sometimes it's just too hard. Hitler is simply too well protected. Though it is true to say that the longer the war went on and the more desperate the situation got for Germany then the number of plots increased and probably the number of people supporting plots in the army high command increased. And it's no coincidence that a lot of the resistance to Hitler comes from within the traditional German military. Many of the senior military figures came from old aristocratic families who, for more aesthetic rather than ideological reasons, always had problems with Hitler, who of course had only served uh, in the First World War as a private. So while they shared an ambition to overturn the provisions of the Versailles Treaty, uh, they were quite uncomfortable with the methods that Hitler and the Nazis were using. My name is Robert Gavard. I'm a professor of modern history at University College Dublin. So while initially in the early 1930s, there was a sort of coalition between the conservatives and Nazi figures, this changed gradually and many of the senior military figures coming from old established uh, aristocratic families began to make plans how to remove Hitler from power, not necessarily with the ambition of restoring democracy in Germany, but a sort of conservative guided democracy as an alternative. With Soviet armies pounding the Nazis from the Black Sea to the Baltic. Getting rid of Hitler is hard when he's experiencing huge military success in these early days of the war. It's difficult to build a big conspiracy against a leader who 
just keeps winning. But by 1943, the tides of war have turned. Hitler used to dominate all of Europe from France to Moscow, but now he's starting to lose, and this means he's no longer invincible. The situation became more pressing from the perspective of these conservative uh, resistors after January 1943, after the military defeat at Stalingrad, uh, when it became increasingly clear to military observers that Germany was losing the war. So for them, there was a certain urgency. They wanted to demonstrate that there was a conservative resistance to the world, but also to fellow Germans to make sure that Nazi Germany would not uh, collapse militarily without there having been an active attempt on Hitler's life. Hitler may be losing the war, but his hold on power is still tight. Like most dictators, Hitler is aware he has enemies everywhere. This makes him incredibly cautious. Getting to Hitler is not that simple. So in order to kill him, someone would have to be willing to essentially sacrifice his or her life, um, trying to shoot him at close quarters, or indeed with the help of an explosive device. But getting that explosive device to Hitler has its challenges. Getting so close to Hitler is a huge risk in and of itself. If they fail, the conspirators face certain death. Even so, a group of military men is ready to act. They have a new idea. If an apparently loyal man could get close enough to Hitler with an apparently innocuous object like a briefcase, they might be able to kill him. One of the most senior figures in the plot is Major General Henning von Tresco. Von Tresco is part of the aristocratic group of military men who have come to despise the Fuhrer. He is happy to carry the bomb, but before the plot is ready, von Tresco is deployed to the Eastern Front to fight against the Soviets. So the plotters turn to another man. Erica Breisacher is Associate Professor in History from Boston's Worcester State University. So Stauffenberg is, again, he's part of the aristocracy, you know, his, his title is Graf, so he's Count von Stauffenberg, but he's one, he has like seven names, Klaus. Klaus Philipp Maria Justinian Schenk Graf von Stauffenberg. And he is a colonel who is brought in by friends of his in the military, particularly high-ranking officials like Henning von Tresco, who was a, a major general, uh, Hans Oster, who's another high-ranking military man with connections to what is called the Abwehr, or the military intelligence. And Stauffenberg isn't afraid of danger. He lost his eye, his left hand, and all but two fingers on his right hand, fighting for the Reich in North Africa. But the reasons so that he was chosen to be the bomber were, A, that he was courageous. He actually was the man with the balls to do it. But B, he had regular access to Hitler because he was chief of staff of the reserve army. So he was called on a regular basis to report to Hitler on the state of, of uh, how many reserves they had to rush to the Russian front or the Western front by then because the Allies had landed um, in France already um, more than a month before the bomb went off. Retaking town after town, Soviet forces find a ravaged country left by the Nazis. But Hitler paid a price for this wanton destruction. That price was more than five million Nazi soldiers. Stauffenberg is under no illusions about the consequences of what he is about to do. Let's get to the essence. With all the means at my disposal, I am practicing treason. 
Stauffenberg is ready to act, despite the consequences. And the clock is ticking. By July 1944, those conspiring against Hitler are aware they're in a race against time. The Soviets are pushing towards Berlin from the east, and a month ago, the Allies finally landed in France. They're coming to Germany from the opposite direction. The German army is gradually retreating while the Red Army is advancing on the Eastern Front. Then, in the summer of 1944, the situation is deteriorating further uh, with the Allied landings in Normandy, which means that uh, Germany is once more fighting a war on uh, several fronts, similar to the First World War. And one of the the big lessons, um, I suppose, that the uh, German military always drew from the First World War is that a war on two fronts should be avoided at all costs. What that means is that uh, Hitler has to divert some of his most experienced troops from the Eastern Front, where there's already a retreat ongoing, to the West to uh, stop, ideally, uh, the military advances of the Allies in France, which, as we know, uh, does not succeed. So Germany is besieged on both sides, in the West and in the East, with Allied troops also advancing through Italy towards the North. So it is increasingly clear that Germany is losing the war, which ironically actually, at least to some people, raises the question of whether a putsch attempt makes sense, as it was increasingly clear that Germany was was losing the war anyway. In this situation, Henning von Tresco and Stauffenberg are kind of the driving forces to say, well, we have to take a stance now before it's too late. And even if that putsch fails, we will have made it very clear to the world there was a resistance to Hitler within Germany. It's important for us to take a step back here, though, just in case we paint our aristocratic officers as avenging angels. It's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, this is not purely a tale of uh, good versus evil. It's a a sort of process of evolution. Many of the uh, leading resistors in 1944 had supported uh, Hitler in 1933, had supported his kind of geopolitical ambitions, had supported his idea that uh, Germany should rise once again as a European uh, superpower, that provisions of the Treaty of Versailles should be undone. And it's only in the later 1930s that they changed their mind for a variety of reasons, either for ethical reasons, but also because they don't believe that Germany is quite ready uh, for war. Uh, interestingly enough, they uh, in 1940, after the, the fall of France, there is a kind of renewed enthusiasm uh, for Hitler among many people uh, that would subsequently uh, end up in the military uh, resistance. Ever since the end of World War I and the imposition of the Treaty of Versailles, most Germans, not just Hitler, have been obsessed with overturning it. Senior establishment figures, like our military conspirators, want to see a lot of the treaty reversed, including getting back territory that Germany lost in places like Czechoslovakia and Poland. So until the very late 1930s, there's a lot of support for Hitler. But once Hitler starts losing, and he starts fighting a war of extermination against Jews and Slavic peoples, many people start to question him again. By 1944, all the stars have aligned. The conspirators are determined to act. There's another potential problem, though. Germany is losing the war anyway. Why take the risk of eliminating Hitler if the Allies are about to do it for you? Like many of the conspirators, Henning von Tresco is more concerned about how this will go down in history than anything else. The assassination must be attempted, whatever the cost. 
Even if it fails, we must take action in Berlin, for the practical purpose no longer matters. What matters now is that the German resistance movement must take the plunge before the eyes of the world and of history. Compared to that, nothing else matters. They're ready. It's time to get rid of Hitler. It's the 20th of July, 1944. Stauffenberg and his briefcase are on the way to another meeting with the Fuhrer. Only Stauffenberg's briefcase is a little heavier than usual. The briefcase would have contained two lumps of plastic explosive into which had been uh, shoved what is called a time pencil, which is a, a fuse. And acid eats through the wire of the fuse in a given number of minutes, and then the bomb goes off. The plan is for Stauffenberg to carry his briefcase straight to Hitler. Part of the context that goes along with this is the fact that this was partially Hitler's Eastern Front headquarters. It was heavily guarded. And so it would require somebody of high rank to be able to get through without being heavily searched. And probably was anyway, but he had some help. It was Stauffenberg and his adjutant, and they brought in two bombs to bring with this briefcase. And as they were setting up for the meeting originally, they were going to meet in a bunker, heavily fortified. And the hope was when this briefcase blows up, that the ricochet and the reverberation in heavily fortified bunker would actually cause shockwaves that would aid in making sure that Hitler died. It was the perfect plan, until Hitler started to complain about the stifling July heat in the bunker. They relocated this meeting to an above-ground brick building, and it was a lot earlier than anticipated. Normally, Hitler tended to have meetings later in the day, he wasn't a real fond, a person fond of meetings. He didn't like rising early, but he moved the meeting early. And so this kind of moved the timeline ahead. Already Stauffenberg is having to adapt the plan on the fly. Next, he has to figure out a way to arm the bombs, return them to the briefcase and get that briefcase as close to Hitler as possible. This sounds difficult enough, but Stauffenberg's injuries make it even more complicated. Essentially, it requires them uh, to put in a fuse and then to enter the room. And uh, that's precisely what Stauffenberg does because of his disability, the fact that he had lost uh, one hand and two fingers on the other. It took them much longer, actually, to put the detonators in, in secret in a, in a bathroom where they had excused themselves. Stauffenberg, it was an exceptionally hot day, and Stauffenberg said that he needed to change his shirt before the meeting with Hitler. But there wasn't enough time to put the fuse into both of the bombs, so there was only one in his briefcase, which he brought into the meeting room, the barrack, and placed next to his feet. And then he, after a while, excused himself and uh, left. The briefcase is armed and in position. Stauffenberg leaves the meeting room and works his way back out through security. Stauffenberg compared it to a 150 millimeter shell, a large shell hitting the hut in which the conference was being held. It blew out the windows of the hut it blew down a large chunk of the concrete roof of the hut. It completely wrecked the hut. Several people were blown through the windows. The windows were actually open because of the stifling heat. 
which uh, lessen the force of the bomb. It's not easy for Stauffenberg to get out past Hitler's security. And he did that by a very cool bluff. So after the bomb had gone off, he was in his car with his ADC and he was stopped at two checkpoints. And the system was that once an alarm had gone off and alarm bells had rung, the headquarters was sealed off from the outside world and no one was allowed to go in or go out. And he literally bluffed his way out. He said, I've got special orders. I've got to get on the plane for, for Berlin. Uh, you've got to let me through. And they, they led him through both those checkpoints. And then he sped to the airport and jumped on his plane. This was the moment to set the next phase of the plan in motion. Assassinating Hitler was not enough. The conspirators knew that without eliminating Hitler's fanatical supporters in every branch of the military and the police, it would be impossible to take control of Germany and exit the war. Once our briefcase delivers its fatal blow, the next stage has to happen quickly. The Nazi power structure, although to a large degree it did depend on the personal leadership of Hitler, the Nazis had their own paramilitary forces, like the SS, the famous black uniformed SS, in power, a whole generation had been brought up as convinced Nazis and we'd had 11 years of Nazi propaganda. And the plotters would have been seen as, as traitors, not as the heroes with which they're seen today. They would have been seen as traitors. And there would have been plenty of loyal Nazis who I think even if Hitler had died, would have seen this as a treasonous conspiracy by anti-Nazis and could have taken control of the state. People like Himmler, the head of the SS, and other leading Nazis in the state. So it was necessary for the military to take over the state and install a new government that would try to make peace with the Allies. The plan has been executed almost perfectly. The briefcase and the bomb have been detonated in position. The plans are in order for after Hitler's death. Everything is ready, except in that busy conference room, the briefcase doesn't stay where Stauffenberg puts it. So everybody goes in for this meeting. He places the briefcase right next to Hitler and then basically excuses himself. As the meeting continues, they move up. The person who moves to Stauffenberg's seat essentially pushes the briefcase back against the table. It's a heavy oak table. And that is the thing that essentially absorbs most of the impact of the bomb. It did go off. It blew up the building. But there was not the reverberation, the contained reverberation that this bomb would have. Four people were injured and ultimately died, but Hitler escaped pretty much with just ear damage. He was shielded by this heavy oak table and the fact that essentially one leg of it blocked most of the, the blast. A wooden table leg is the only thing that's come between Hitler and assassination. To make matters worse, Stauffenberg has launched the coup into motion because he believes Hitler is dead. This is a fatal error because the Fuhrer now knows exactly who is trying to kill him. He can watch the plotters reveal themselves around Europe as they put the coup plans into action. The coup only failed when it became clear that Hitler had survived. It was announced that Hitler would make a broadcast that night. His familiar voice would ring out over the radio waves. But the coup had already been launched in certain places. In, in occupied Paris, all the SS had been arrested by the army, by the potters. So it was rather embarrassing when Hitler came on the radio and they were forced to release the SS and say, oh, it was all a misunderstanding. So in several places that were occupied by the German army, like Prague, 
Vienna and Paris. The coup went ahead. It went ahead in Berlin, but Goebbels was there, the propaganda minister in Berlin, and he speedily persuaded loyalist officers that Hitler was alive. He put one of them, a chap called Raymer, on the phone to Hitler. Hitler said, do you recognize my voice, Raymer? And Raymer said, yes, my Fuhrer. So he immediately promoted him to be this quite junior officer to be in charge of all the forces in Berlin with orders to put down the putsch, to put the coup down. And that's what happened. Stauffenberg and many of the other key conspirators take refuge in the headquarters of the German army in Berlin. Hitler's loyalists quickly track them down. There was late that night, there was a gunfight in the in the Bendlerstrasse, the, the defense ministry. Stauffenberg was wounded again in his shoulder and then he was immediately uh, taken down to the courtyard with his three leading comrades and shot by a firing squad on the spot that night. And it was rather rather good for him, I think, that he did that he was shot, because the remaining conspirators who were rounded up were, were badly tortured and in the end were, were hanged. So the price paid for the failure of the coup uh, by the plotters was terrible. Very, very few of the actual plotters survived the war. The pursuit and execution of the plotters went on right until the end of the war. Certainly, it would have been counted in the, in the hundreds, something like seven, 700, probably even more were executed and their families were taken into custody as well. Stauffenberg's children were sent to a special camp. Their name was going to be changed. The name Stauffenberg was going to be wiped out of history and they were going to be adopted by loyal SS families. The costs to the plotters, their families and the resistance in Germany were immense. The plot had come to nothing. Was it all worth the risk? Henning von Tresco, one of the key conspirators, went out to no man's land between the Russian and German lines on the Eastern Front. He killed himself with a hand grenade, leaving behind a letter. The whole world will vilify us now, but I'm still totally convinced that we did the right thing. Hitler is the arch enemy not only of Germany, but of the world. When, in a few hours time, I go before God to account for what I have done and left undone, I know I will be able to justify what I did in the struggle against Hitler. None of us can bewail his own death. A human being's moral integrity begins when he is prepared to sacrifice his life for his conviction. The conspirators had secured a kind of moral victory, a statement about the Nazis and about Hitler. But these plotters were not radicals. They were members of the German establishment. And in many ways, they were culpable for Hitler's rise in the first place. Elite members of the military may have had doubts about Hitler, but at first they thought he might be easily controlled. So I think they had at least that sense that this was not a good direction for the country and could lead to, to their downfall and even the destruction of Germany itself. Whether or not they saw themselves as having allowed or or made the conditions for Hitler to come to power, I don't think you see that. I would argue that you see that in the in the wake of the war, the Nuremberg trials in particular. Franz von Papen, who was a member of the Center Party and had been really important in negotiating with Paul von Hindenburg, the president, in 1932 to make Hitler chancellor by arguing, 
make me vice chancellor. We can contain this guy. It'll be fine. We're going to capture all of the support he has. And then when he inevitably crumbles because he's a crazy man, we'll be able to keep that and, and life will go on as before. He was found not guilty at Nuremberg, one of two. But in reality, you know, never really saw themselves as enabling what Hitler had done, what the Nazi regime was doing. They saw themselves as trying to be, and this is the words of Helmar Schacht, who was the Reichsbank president, until the Valkyrie plot, where he was then imprisoned as potentially maybe being uh, sympathetic to it, the adult in the room. And I think because of that, they kind of justified to themselves, I was never a Nazi follower. I never really believed in Nazism. I did my best to mitigate what I could. And I would argue that that's probably the position. If I could speculate, which is probably not great for a historian to do, I would speculate that that's sort of where a lot of these co-conspirators were. Acting against a tyrant isn't just dangerous, and it's not only morally difficult, it also poses a practical problem. When can you remove a dictator without making the problems worse? How do you know when it's time to act? I think the main lesson to take is that it's important to pay attention to people sounding the alarm. And, and the hard part is, is that there are sort of these minor or, or mini ecosystems that all have their own cultures. Military culture, for example, looks at things, I, I would argue, differently than civilian culture does. And thinking about how we understand power, how we understand obligation and protection and citizenship and all of those things, you know, you get to a point where the only answer seems to be a violent one. And by the time you get there, it's, it's questionable what success looks like. You know, I don't know what it would have meant to be successful in this plot. I don't know if they would have, the conspirators would have agreed on that definition. I don't know that they actually thought they would be successful. This seems like it was a shot in the dark, particularly as every single attempt seemed to fail for either luck or bad luck or, you know, serendipity or a table leg or, you know, just not the right group of people. And I think that's sort of the question, right, is how do we take that and then act on it? Because it seems like it's one of those things we go back and retroactively label as, oh, that's a moment we could have done something about this. That's a moment we should have paid attention to. And like anything else, the Nazi regime and the way that it kind of came to fruition and consolidated power and took its time built on seeds of things that were already there in Germany and Europe and globally, I would argue, things like eugenics and pseudoscience and all of that. And it came on so gradually and incorporated this and added that, that by the time you get to 1943 and there are, you know, a network of camps and the war effort is collapsing and, you know, monetarily, financially, economically, the war machine just cannot be sustained. You know, Stauffenberg and others really believed that it was inevitable particularly after D-Day, that Germany was going to lose. And so some of this is about what are you trying to save? And those are some really hard questions. By the time you're putting a bomb in a briefcase to eliminate one of the most fanatical and dangerous leaders the world has known, 
it's already too late. By July 1944, millions of people had already died. Eliminating Hitler could not bring them back, and the failure of our briefcase reminds us that the challenge is to stop a dictator before they come to power, and that relies on the strength of democracy itself. I'm Sarah Percy, and this was An Object in Time. The supervising producer is Edwina Stott, and the sound engineer is Carrie Dell. Fellow history lovers, if you, like me, enjoy your history with a side order of news, why don't you try Rear Vision? I'm Kerry Phillips, and as well as looking at the background to what's making headlines here in Australia and around the world, we dig into some of the curious and quirky things that pop up in the wave of information we all surf today. Join us for Rear Vision on your ABC Listen app.